Hey, my name is Akash Thakar, and this is Sound Business. This is the podcast where we dive into the mindsets and methods of some of the top musicians, sound designers, or audio creators in the world. We're going to interview everyone from plugin makers, performing musicians, video game composers, and everything in between, and learn how they run a successful business and how they're making a killer living in the worlds of music and sound. My hope with this podcast is that you can be exposed to the many myriad different ways there are to make a killer living in the worlds of music and sound, and help you realize that there's no one right way to get to the top. And with that, let's get into the episode. My guest today is Philip White. Philip is a composer who's worked on tons of video game, TV, and film projects such as Agent Carter, The Sims 3, Command and Conquer Red Alert 3, and has composed for over 142 episodes of the hit show Supernatural, and is now composing for a new TV series that is the prequel to Supernatural called The Winchesters. In this episode, we talk about what it's like to compose for hundreds of episodes of the same TV show, how he stays fresh creatively between projects, and how he actually started as a drama major before switching into the music world, and how he made that transition, and so much more. So without further ado, let's get into the interview with Philip White. So my first question for you is, you grew up in Madrid playing classical guitar, and then got interested in composition around the end of high school, but... Can you tell me how that came about? Because most people who get interested in music in that kind of high school age is like, oh, I'm going to be a rock star. Composition doesn't really cross the mind. Can you tell me how that specifically came about? Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, no one's ever asked me that specifically. So I started with guitar. I should say that there was some classical, but it was a mix of all kinds of, I would say, folk Spanish guitar, Latin American songs, Spanish songs, some flamenco, some classical pieces, but it was all tablature. I actually didn't learn on traditional music notation until later, which I'm actually glad about because it got me playing the instrument faster than I otherwise would have, I think. A lot of the guitar music that I was playing was a real mishmash. There were like Beatles songs too, as well, thrown in. My teacher had a really eclectic taste in music, and his name is Vicente Nachet. He's unfortunately been out of touch with him for some time, but he's responsible for my life as a musician, just a wonderful human being and a wonderful music teacher. So a lot of the, the repertoire was very soloistic. It wasn't part of any other ensembles. I didn't Regrettably, I didn't actually play in any kind of orchestra, or obviously not because you know guitar is typically not an orchestral instrument. But I didn't play in bands really, with the exception of a very very short stint in eleventh grade that like didn't really amount to much. So my experience was just playing this acoustic classical instrument, and I liked it. But I think at a certain point, I should say also throughout my whole childhood, I adored soundtracks. I was just as so many of us grow up watching all the greats, the Spielberg-Williams collaborations, Alan Silvestri. It just I loved movies. I loved soundtracks. And they were always there. So I think that informed uh, a lot of my musical aesthetic. And at a certain point, I think it was, uh, I was a junior in high school. I went to high school most of the time in Madrid, but I did spend two years at Exeter, in, in a boarding school in the States, in New Hampshire. And while I was there, I decided to join choir because they were going to put on a a sort of a choral performance, not a staged version, but a choral performance of West Side Story, which I had grown up with a lot. And when they were doing it, I thought, oh, that's 
actually, I really like that music. I have no idea if I can sing, but I, I have somewhat of an ear. Or at the time, I was thinking may- maybe I could just sneak into the choir because I really wanted to perform the musical. And I did, and I loved it. And I think at that point, I started to just get the intuitive sense that I wasn't really cut out to be a performer, per se. Not immediately, because I did then, my senior year, I when I was applying to colleges, I applied to Tufts in Boston, to Tufts University in Boston, and also to the New England Conservatory of Music, because they have a degree program. But at NEC, I applied for guitar performance, and I didn't get in, which is actually a blessing. But it was at around that same time that I sort of realized that I didn't have the mentality to be a, a performer. I love playing guitar, but I would just trip up over myself when it came time to perform. And so because of my experience singing West Side Story, and I think my mom also had a really had a large collection of orchestral records, actually, and, and a lot of Christmas choral music, which I loved. And we had a piano at home that I learned, I took lessons when I was eight for about eight weeks and it didn't last every other child. Of course, I wish I, you know, had the, either the self-discipline or the discipline coming from parents to continue. But anyway, that was neither here nor there. But I went to the piano and mind you, I still didn't know how to read music at all. And I would just start plunking things out. I found it a little, not surprisingly, more intuitive than the guitar in terms of how notes are arranged and how to build chords. I didn't know what the chords were called. I, I, didn't have names for them, but I liked manipulating the sounds and I could, I didn't quite understand the logic, but I was intrigued by it. And I would just literally just try building these funny, weird things. And I became more and more interested in composing. And then that summer, I spent five weeks at Berkeley College of Music in Boston for guitar, which was helpful, but it was actually much more helpful from a theory point of view, because I learned theory and ear training And that was enough to just open the floodgates. Everything that I was experimenting with up to that point just congealed and made sense. And I just loved the idea of theory and harmony and how things work together. And I felt like I could actually start to compose a little bit. That was tremendous. That that really set me on the first real step on a composing path. I still play guitar. And still thought of myself as that that was my primary instrument. I couldn't play piano at all. But I was using the piano as a way to sort of find my way into composing. And that continued. And then what ended up happening was I I took a gap year between high school and college. And then I it was at that point that I did end up going to Tufts. But because I didn't get into NEC for guitar, I said, okay, let me just go to Tufts for one year. And then maybe I'll apply, I'll reapply for composition. And that's exactly what I did. And fortunately got in. And I was so glad that that's the way it ended up because I just got so much more out of it. And again, it just confirmed the fact that I just was not cut out for a career as a concert guitarist by any stretch. But composition was certainly interesting. Yeah. And that was sort of a long-winded way of saying how I transitioned from sort of guitar playing to composition. And then after that, after I graduated from college, I when I moved out to Los Angeles, I felt like I needed even more found out about the program at USC, the USC film scoring program, and applied there and fortunately got in. And that accelerated my learning to an even greater degree. Yeah, just little, there are lots of little steps that <laughs> added up to a lot. But but the yeah, that sort of senior year and gap year were, were ones where I was literally just like experimenting with the piano. And there was enough that I liked about its possibilities to make me more curious. So, yeah. 
that's how that's roughly how that happened. I love it. And while you're in Boston, while you're at Tufts, you're studying drama, right? So you're doing drama and music composition at the same time, which is not a common pairing. No, it's not. And of course, like in retrospect, it's of course I'm in film scoring because drama and music like it, of course. (laughs) But no, at the time I, I had started acting as a senior in high school on a lark, just I actually, I joined the drama group because they were looking for musicians for guitarists. So I thought I would just go and play guitar or something. And I ended up on, on stage, like as befuddled as anybody else. Like, why am I, how did I end up here? But I found it really fun. And I continued in college. I, I actually have to say, I really, a career as a, as an actor or in the performing arts is something entirely different. But as a high school student or in college, I can't recommend it enough. You just, you learn so many qualities about yourself and other people and the how do I explain it? Just the certain qualities that you sometimes have to bring to bear in yourself when you're on stage are just really, I think, can really serve you over time. So anyway, I yes, I was a drama major and also studying composition at, at NEC, which and you're right, I, I'm sure there must have been other people who've done similar majors, but it but yeah, not common for sure. Yeah, yeah. And I was going to ask, you hinted at it already, how one informed the other because at some point you decided okay music's the thing that's what i'm going to go for that's what i'm going to go all in on but at some point i'm sure still to this day there are times where that drama background affects or is useful in your career whether it be with clients or whether it would be in mindset or anything like that can you give any examples of how you think about things from that point of view yeah that's a good question my wife is always the one to say of course it does and i'm trying to think how would i but i think it may just be much more just sort of ingrained and natural and i don't by any means i don't think it's given me any more of an advantage than anybody else at all but i would say i think just on one level when i'm watching a cut of whatever it is a movie or, or a tv series i tend to hone in on the acting and not on the music. <laughs> I, it takes me a while to actually think about, wait, okay. Oh, there's actually supposed to be music here. Okay. All right. Let me stop and think about that or watch it again repeatedly. That's just what I need to do. But my first viewing is so concentrated on just taking in the story and the acting. And I'll notice if there is music, if there's a temp track or something, of course, I'll notice it and it'll register whether it's more or less working or more or less not. But but I'm much more invested in the story, which I think that's just the way my brain is. I just, I, like everybody else, I want to be entertained and I want to be, I want to take in what's being presented at me. So in terms of how it helps, I guess I just, I can sometimes relate to certain acting moments or I put myself in their shoes and think about how certain lines would be delivered, things like that. But that's, I think a lot of people would do that anyway. But yeah, I'm trying to think of if there's a specific moment or not. But I'm not sure. But I think just the having been on stage, and mind you, I actually have very little experience acting on film or on camera. It's I did a, a bit when I moved out to LA, and I found that I I felt like such a fraud doing it. It's hard to describe. I felt very just like what I was doing was just not that interesting. And I felt the acting on stage was much more fulfilling, but I also just realized that I lost the desire to pursue it as as a livelihood. I take my hat off to anybody who does because it, it is so hard. It really is so hard. And music's hard enough. So it's just better to focus on one one art form that's competitive enough. But yeah, I think just being generally informed by dramatic moments probably in some way, I'm sure, influences how I choose to write a scene. And it's not always right. In fact, many of the first tries are not. But 
in some ways, I'm sure it does. I'll approach a scene differently from anybody else. Yeah. Yeah. And you hinted on something a little earlier when you were talking about acting of like, how you felt like a fraud or when you're acting in those circumstances. But I'm sure there were moments in, let's say, USC, where you're at the super prestigious film scoring program where it felt like maybe you didn't know what you were doing or that if maybe imposter syndrome or anything like that. Did those struggles come up for you or is it pretty easy? They never came up. Not what <laughs> Of course, all the time. And for all of us in different ways, you know, we're all from different backgrounds, some with more technical experience, others with less, some of us with more classical backgrounds, others with less. So everybody feels really unsteady and how can we how can we move forward in this weird world but what was nice about our particular class at USC uh, I felt I don't know if I can speak for everybody but but I felt as a class we were very close and we all had our unique voice that we brought out and I think we were all very supportive of each other which was really great and actually still are we still we don't meet all that often but when we do it still feels very much uh, with a similar vibe as when we were 17 years ago now that's, I feel old. That's beautiful, though, to have that kind of network and have those people also doing similar stuff to you. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Some are still, I think some have moved out of town and we're in different places in our careers, but it still feels, yeah, my experience at USC still feels very fresh in my mind, even though it's been a while. But yeah, very impactful experience for me. And I, and I realize the school route is not for everybody. And it is just one path of many that you can take in the film scoring world. For me, I found that it was very necessary from a just, I think, networking point of view and also just from a, a technical and honestly, just musical point of view. I Yes, I'd gone to a music conservatory and studied composition, but like there was so much I needed to learn in terms of orchestration and just writing for the orchestra in general, I was so green, still learning for God's sakes. But at the time I felt very, just like I needed to soak all that up and USC provided it. And this is not a knock on NEC, but at USC, I felt like I learned almost as much in one year as I had in, my, in the time that I was at NEC, just because it was so concentrated and it was such a specific discipline. You're writing for film and TV, which it, it's a very different application than writing for the concert stage. Yes, there's obviously overlap, but many different demands. I love it. So when you were like, you know, those feelings of like uncertainty and stuff, they happen to every single composer ever in the universe. And when you got out into the quote unquote real world after USC, what were the kind of steps you took to make it so that you can say, oh, okay, I'm, now I have to make music feed me. How did you take those steps? Yeah, that, that was certainly a very, <laughs> very real fear at the, you know, at the end of school. I felt for me, my what I felt would be a good match for me was trying to find, find work as an assistant. My first job out of USC was assisting this wonderful composer, Megan Cavallari, at the time. And I think she still may do this, but did a lot of children's animation. And what was great about my time with her was that she gave me free reign to really flesh out a lot of her arrangements. And I got to use, I was working in Logic at the time, but really practice my my skills with virtual instruments and arranging and synthestrating and uh, working inside the computer and making things sound as good as possible within the box, as it were, which was a continuation of what we were doing at USC, but this was for an actual job. And uh, and it was great. And, you know, she wrote great melodies and um, it was really fun, really fun arranging. 
some of the songs we did uh, for um, some of the Barbie movies I remember, and, and also for a, a series based on the Eloise books, which was super fun. That was great. And then I got a call from Chris Lennertz, who actually was recommended by uh, head of the program at USC, and, and he'd recommended me, Brian King. And, and Chris was looking for an assistant, and he said, interested? And I said, sure. I, I think at the time he was actually looking for someone specifically to do additional music for an animated movie called Shark Bait. And I said, of course, a newbie film composer, I jumped at the chance and worked on that for a little bit. And he, that year was actually, he had just started working on a new series on the CW called Supernatural, which some of you may recognize, which ended up running for 15 years, which is a wonderful, amazing show. But that was the first year it was on. He needed help with Supernatural as well. So I began with programming and just sort of helping him with whatever was needed. And he didn't fire me, so I continued working on more and more projects. But that that was sort of how I realized, okay, you know, I need to eat. So um, for me, working as an assistant was invaluable. And I have to say, as much as I learned at USC, which was, you know, the image that I that I take from that is like the scene in The Matrix when Neo gets plugged in and like, it's like, I know Kung Fu. That's sort of how I felt after a year at USC is like, I think I know film scoring. Of course, I don't. But it was like that amount of information was forced into my brain. Even so, once I started working for Megan and much more so with Chris, I felt like, oh, there's a whole other level of learning that happens when you assist somebody who's actually a composer in the real world. And um, so, yeah, my brain just kept exploding more and more with each life situation that I... uh, entered into from school to then working as an assistant. So I, I learned so much with Chris just in, in all regards. He also is just a wonderful human being. He was and still is a great mentor. We still work together on projects. In fact, the show that I'm working on right now, The Winchesters, was really in large part, it's because of my relationship with him and working on Supernatural that I even remotely had a chance at working on The Winchesters, which is a prequel based on Supernatural, which takes place in 1972 and involves how Sam and Dee's parents met and all their misadventures. Yeah, you have a ton of credits, but I think the longest lasting for basically any composer I've seen is Supernatural. That's insane that it went on for that long and that you're doing musical stuff on it from programming to orchestration and composition on it. How do you stay fresh over 15 seasons working on the same show? Yep, that's a great question. One maybe unique situation about Supernatural was that it was co-composed by Chris and Jay Gruska, and they would basically trade off episodes. Jay would do one, and then Chris would do another, and it afforded everybody the chance to like take a breather from episode to episode. Normally, you know, episodic TV, you're just things tend to overlap and pile on top of each other. So it afforded both of them to pursue other projects. And I think just have time to, to, or I should say, a little more time to sit back and say, okay, what should we try for this episode? Or what should we do differently? The nice thing about the show is that it was a combination of sounds which needed to be very familiar and consistent. And also, the situations were sometimes different enough where we could have a lot of fun with the music as well. Gosh, I mean, they even... I wasn't as involved in this one episode, but there was a whole musical that was done. There are little moments which needed to be musically like way out of left field in order to sell the drama or usually comedy. 
And then the through line musically was a lot of these aleatoric orchestral effects and gestures that became such a signature sound to the show. And that remained consistent. And that ended up being almost like a source of, it was a touchstone for everybody. It's like, okay, this is where the show needs this kind of sound. It's the demon appears and here's the sound which we need. And it became, especially over the years, just like more iconic and emblematic. you, You don't really need to reinvent the wheel at that point because it's just like what the show needs. But when there were occasions to try something different, we definitely went there and and the producers were really, and writers, I should say, were great about coming up with just different scenarios that could accommodate that. Yeah. And considering you did this show for <laughs> that long, and then I believe Supernatural ended in 2020, and then Winchester's is coming out now in 2022. Do you have to think about it in a way where it's okay, it's the same thing, but different? How do I do that? Like, how do you think about this thing that's a spinoff of something you did for so long? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, we talked about that a lot. I'm very fortunate to be co composing it with Jay Gruska, who wrote on Supernatural. And then there's a lot of the team from Supernatural is also on board with Winchester's, which is great. It's like getting the band back together. And we had a lot of conversations with Robbie Thompson, the executive producer, and other producers about how do we pay homage to the mothership, as we call Supernatural, and also distinguish ourselves as a new show. On the one hand, early on, I think we realized, okay, there's still the supernatural element of horror. The demon mythology is pretty consistent. That is a carryover from Supernatural. So It felt right to actually use a lot of those similar sounds for Winchester's. But the show also takes place in 1972. So that right there is like, okay, that will, I think, to be completely honest, we're mid-season, so we're still figuring out what is the right sound. But I think we are leaning more towards acoustic and organic sounds, I should say, acoustic instruments rather than heavily distorted ones and not using as many synths. I mean, there were electronic sounds for sure back then, but not as many. So I think leaning away from those and more towards, like I said, acoustic instruments or just very not overdriven guitars, a little more of a gentler touch, not as like heavy rock that the late 70s and 80s or 90s would produce, which we did obviously feature on Supernatural. So I think that's where we're trying to separate a little bit. But there's a lot of familiar DNA. that viewers will recognize for sure, which I think makes sense. I think it's appropriate. That's super cool. And you've done more than just these two shows, even though Supernatural went on forever. And throughout all of your gigs and movies and TV shows, there's no doubt that you've run into the idea of clients having a temp track inside of their movie or TV show or whatever and being super, super married to it. They might even say, make it sound exactly like this, or we really want something like this, or whatever it may be. You might agree, you might disagree, there might be some friction there. How do you deal with those situations? Because I see this all the time with composers where they're like, ah, but no, we can do so much more than this just this temp track. So how do you kind of handle that? Yeah, I think this is a fascinating topic. And I think you can approach it from a lot of different angles. I feel honestly, like I have very different views about the temp one day to the next. It really depends on the project, the timeline, the people involved, the appropriateness of the temp, how well it's working or not. It really, it can be your best friend or your worst enemy. Yes, there's 
the camp of composers and I fall into this sometimes, which is don't let me hear anything. Let me see the visuals just on a clean slate and let me see what I can come up with. Absolutely. If there's a lot of time to just experiment and come up with sounds, my God, that would be, yes, that's amazing. A lot of times though, when there's not enough time to, to really experiment and you're given a, for anybody who's watching who doesn't know the term temp track, it's just an abbreviation for temporary track. And sorry if I'm speaking down to anybody. I don't know how wide the audience is, forgive me. But it's just existing music, which is placed as a placeholder before the original composition is made, just to give directors and producers a sense of how the finished product might feel overall. But sometimes, like I said, whether it's the editor or music editor, whoever puts the temp track in to the cut, just finds a perfect piece of music that just works so well. And you're just kind of like, Ugh. I think the trick is just identifying what is working with that particular temp track and whether it's instrumentation choice, but more just uh, dramatically what's working and then abstractly figuring out for yourself what you can do to achieve the same effect. Fortunately, nobody ever tempts anything with Williams because why? It's just, it's a losing proposition. And the man is just such a master that you also can't hear anything else but Star Wars, E.T., Raiders, whatever it is, that it just it actually wouldn't really be helpful as a temp track, I think, in many cases. So I think in my view, and there are several composers who have tried this, and I remember James Newton Howard was talking about this as well. I think it, it can be a great way forward for film composers, or possible, and that is to be hired much earlier on in the process, say when the filming crew is hired, whether it's the cinematographer or... Um, that part of that team, or maybe the editor, I'm not sure. But if we're brought on at that stage and we get a chance to look at the script, then we can simmer in in the script, even before anything is shot, and come up with themes, ideas, and in an ideal world, maybe write, I don't know, come up with three or four different themes just in, in the box, or as a if you really feel ambitious to hire a small band to record it and put it together, but yeah, a five, seven, ten minute suite of ideas for this film or for the TV show before anything's shot. And then if the director or the producers like it and respond to it, the editor or the music editor can then use that as the temp. That becomes the temp. And then what happens is everyone gets attached to it because you're going to get attached to anything that is put in the film and played over and over, no matter how well or or inappropriate it is, we just get used to things no matter what they are. So if it can be something original, then you're in. Then your job is just infinitely easier and you just then use those themes and extrapolate them and develop them however you see fit. But you have you have the seeds that have been planted and emotionally everybody is on board. So it then just becomes a question of tweaking this and how do we play this scene with this theme? But the core has been established rather than trying to chase something that, that has been created for another movie. It's just a matter of our realities. Like I don't fault anybody for having a temp or relying on it. Many of the people on the filmmaking team, it's a way of just seeing like how well things are working. And because we're human beings and our brains work the way they do, the more you hear something you're just going to get attached. So when that temp is then replaced by something new, it just is like, whoa, 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 what, what is, what's this? And it takes time to then readjust and say, oh, that's, it's our original score. Okay. Cause, and I've had experiences where I've written something to obviously replace the temp 
and it was rejected. And then I tried something else and that was rejected. I wrote something else that was rejected. And I think I was about on my fourth revision. They put in my first version and thought, oh, actually, it's actually kind of working pretty well. And I thought, okay, good. It just, sometimes it just takes time. It takes time for us to sit with things. So if we can sit with something original, if we're brought in early enough to write something original that's not to picture even, that could be often really interesting and I don't want to say the most creative because you always we're always coming up with creative solutions. And a lot of times the temp helps. It gives us ideas, honestly. Wow, I wouldn't have tried that, but that's a really cool sound. Let me try that. Yeah, long-winded way of saying it can be extremely helpful. Like, for instance, on the Loud House movie, an animated movie I did a couple years back, the temp was put together, I think, by the editor, Peter Edinger. And it was spot on. It was just, it was great. It worked really well. And I used all my original themes that I, that Chris, actually Chris Lenners and I developed and I was able to put it in, but the temp was a really useful guide. And other times it's not. Other times you just hear it and you go, okay, I know what I need to do and that's fine and that's okay. But yeah, just to, to circle back to the idea of creating something before anything is filmed and presenting it to the producers as like, here's an idea. What do you think? And if you can get on board at that level, it just, I think that, you know, the carpet kind of rolls out in front of you creatively. Obviously, there'll be bumps, but I think it just can be a real opportunity for not only unifying the sound, but having a very unique and unique sound as well. I think that's an important idea when it comes to just working with clients, because there are times where, you know, you don't want to necessarily push back all the time and you need to know where that kind of line is and how to work with clients really well. And I'm curious about your years of working on film and TV. Have you found anything when it comes to being a pro composer that you didn't know at the start of your career that you didn't know mattered so much to clients? Certainly when I was starting out, just to come back to the issue of the temp, when I was starting out, I underestimated how attached everybody would get to the temp track. And many times as composers were brought on board at the very end. So that's something that I definitely underestimated. I was aware of it, but I underestimated how what a force field it could be through no fault of anybody's. But yeah, and otherwise just, I think about where the power dynamics are in a team. It's not always the person with the title that actually holds the most power, meaning the director may not always be the one most in charge. It may be a producer. So sussing out who's the most important person to please and make sure that person's happy to <laughs> to stay hired is an important skill to have. And you, know, you learn it as you go, obviously. But yeah, definitely a lot of Learning how to read rooms, read dynamics is very helpful in, in the film and TV world because it's ultimately, every, you're always working with other people and personalities. Admittedly, now, post-pandemic, it's a little different. We're a little more fractured and isolated, I suppose, which is a pity because you know a lot is, is done over Zoom, but the dynamics are still there. They may be a little bit harder to read right now because of the sort of digital divide, but, but it's still important. Nice. Very nice. Now, a question I like to ask people, everyone who comes on as we start wrapping up as a second to last question is when you were first starting out, it could have been as a guitarist in Spain, it could have been when you went to NEC or Tufts or any kind of starting point. How did you define the idea of success and how has that changed over time? And what does that mean to you now? That's such a great question. I think when I was in college, I had no idea that I could even remotely have any kind of career in the music world. So much of what we do is, when we're young is just blind faith, which is so necessary. 
And it's great. It really is. It's just propelled me forward in ways that I, I might not have otherwise. But when I was, I think at USC, I think my idea of success was just like, can I work in this world in any capacity and pay my rent and put food on the table? If I can just do that and obviously enjoy what I'm doing, okay. And fortunately, I was able to do that for several years. And then I think personality-wise, I'm a little shyer in some regards in that I don't take as many risks or as many leaps. It depends on the, I guess, when I was younger, I think I probably did more. But I certainly saw how competitive the field is. And so I think my goal was just like, how can I stay employed and keep doing what I'm doing? And a lot of that involved being an assistant, helping Chris or anybody else as well. And then at a certain point, I started to realize, okay, I have enough credits and I've been writing a lot of additional music. How do I start to make more of a name for myself as, as me, as a composer, rather than writing additional music for somebody else or as someone's assistant or what have you? And I'm still learning how to do that to some extent, even though I've done been fortunate to have several projects under my belt where I have been under my own name. So now my idea of success isn't that different, honestly. It's just, can I still enjoy what I do, which I do, write music for media, whatever that is, and however that changes, who knows, write music for stories that are being told in whatever format that is, and be able to pay my mortgage, not rent, but it's still responsibilities. And I'm married, I have two kids, young kids, five and three. And now it's much more about sort of family stability. And honestly, my family is comes first before work. Success is about is everybody in our family unit doing well? And and if I'm enjoying what I'm doing for the most part, even if it's not like a, a huge multi-million dollar budget with a hugely big project, I'm okay with that. If I can balance a musical career, which fulfills me and hopefully pushes me and also have fulfilling family time, which is very central to me. But And if the, those can live, and obviously <laughs> there's always going to be different demands from one or the other at different times. And that's always challenging. But I think that's, that's my idea of success right now. But yeah, it's a great question because it's a, a lot of times what we think of success is this sort of idea of what we're sort of fed by the outside world, which is lights, money, fame, and that's fine. And genuinely, if there are people who want to pursue that, like they should, that's, there's nothing wrong with that necessarily but but for me i yeah work is not it's not everything i like playing soccer on sundays with my local team i like playing tennis i enjoy just not everything is about music and i don't think everything should there's there's way more of your life that you can bring into composing from just having a life than just being 12 hours a day in front of a daw <laughs> Yeah, I love it. I think that's a beautiful note to start ending on. And as a last question, where can people find you? Plug anything you want, websites, anything like that. Sure. Yeah. I'll say my website at philipwhitemusic.com or or you just feel free to email me at philiptwhite at me.com. Make sure it includes the T because if you just write Philip White, it'll go to the dear person who gets so many emails misdirected at him. <laughs> and uh, he's kind enough to just forward them on to me. So yeah, Philip T. White at me.com or my website, or I have a YouTube channel as well. I think it's just under, I think it's under Philip White Music. I honestly haven't checked it in a while. And Facebook, just my name, Philip White. 
And I fill up white music as well as Facebook, but I honestly think I'm going to close it because it, it seems a little redundant at this point to have two. And then on Instagram as well, Philip White Composer, I believe. Again, you can tell how like social media savvy I am. But anyhow, <laughs> um, yeah, but thank you, Akash. This has been really fun. And uh, yeah, anybody has any questions or wants to reach out, feel free by all means. Awesome. Beautiful. Thank you so much for taking the time today. My pleasure. Total, total pleasure. That's the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for listening as always. And considering I work in the world of video game, music, and sound, and so many people are always asking me how they break into that field, I have a newsletter set up for you. So if you want to learn how to make music and sound effects for video games and actually be paid to do it, just go to bit.ly forward slash soundbizpod. Sound, B-I-Z, pod. And that newsletter will set you up with two free courses and a bunch of free ebooks and even sound effects that'll get you set up and teach you how to work in the world of video game music and sound. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time. And if you're looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to, this podcast is actually a part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. So if you want to check those out, hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.